Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. It is good to be here gathered. I'm privileged to be in the house of God. Anybody excited to be in the house of God? Y'all seem a little quieter today. Look at your neighbor and just say, wake up, wake up. Come on, tell them, wipe the crust out your eyes. Wake up, wake up. It's good to be here. Welcome to our first time visitors. I think this is a good moment for me to welcome you. If you're here for the first time, uh, we are glad that you are here. And for those of you who have been coming maybe for a couple of weeks and we, we, no one has been able to engage you. you we, we just haven't said hi yet. We thank you for being here as well. Our church believes we exist to join Jesus and his mission to redeem our city. It is a complex city. It is an overpopulated city. It's an expensive city. It is a no square footage city. We live in the closets. Amen. But nevertheless, it is a city that Jesus loves. And because Jesus loves it, we have an obligation to love it as well. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah says something so unique. He says, seek the welfare of the city because in its welfare, you'll find your own. So we don't believe in the good of the city in terms of we don't believe in just the good of the believers in the city. We believe in the city. We believe in the local businesses. We believe in the school districts. We believe in our social workers. We believe in our teachers and our principals. We believe in the police department. We pray for our elected officials. Why? Because when the city thrives, Jeremiah 29 says you thrive. So we believe in the good of the city. And um, so so we're, we're excited that you are here. Uh, you, you are really welcome. You've passed at least 700 churches to get here and four of them on one block. And so we are, we are grateful that you decided to come hang out with us in a tight space. Let me say this really quickly for those of you who are standing. First of all, y'all are VIPs. Y'all are, y'all are dope. Can we thank God for those standing? I will say this. If there's a lady standing, brothers, won't you go ahead and offer that seat to, to, the, to the lady? Uh, also, let me say this to the second service. You know, Y'all, if y'all want to sleep in a bit and come to the third service, it's all right. I know y'all don't want to miss brunch, but take a, take a couple extra hours of sleep. And there's a little bit of room in the third service. So I'm serious when I say that. Some of you, if you could consider um, coming to the third, that would be a blessing as we continue to look for, uh, for, for space. Well, listen, it's a great Sunday to be here. Amen. Let's get into the word of God. We're in Romans 8. Thank you, babe. Romans 8 is where we are. Do me a favor and get there. We've made a commitment, y'all, to work through the book of Romans. And when I say work through the book of Romans, I mean verse by verse and line by line. Um, you know, Jesus says something really important in Matthew 28. As he's finishing up here on earth and tidying things up, he has one last instruction for the church. In Matthew 28, he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And that word all is so important. Because what that word all is saying is Jesus is like, don't be selective in what you teach. Be selective in what you preach, but teach and preach all that I have commanded. And so we try to make a commitment by going through books of the Bible. And so we started going through Romans last year, January last year, and we took a little bit of a break. So which is why it took us so long to finally get to chapter eight. But we're in chapter eight today. Um, do me a favor. Pick me up in verse 31. I'm going to just jump right in for the sake of time. And family, by the way, I'm glad y'all are here, but y'all are in the spit zone. 
And so if something flies out, just wipe it and keep going. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He says, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's going to go through a list here. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or a sword? If you write in your Bibles, write Psalm 44, verse 22, next to this next verse. He's going to quote it. For our sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. It says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Um, I want to preach today from the topic entitled, You Already Know. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father, we are grateful to be back in your word. This is the climax of our time together to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray, oh God, that your presence would be in this room. I need it to preach and everyone else needs it to hear. We need to hear from you today, oh God. So, Father, I, Father, I pray that you would transform our lives by this word. May Christ be presented. May he be clear. May, may it be upfront. May it be explicit. And those who don't know the Lord, I pray they, they would wrestle today with getting to know a Savior named Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You already know. I, I'm going to start the sermon today with, with a statement. And the statement for me is extremely true. I love preaching. I really do. I, I, I love the, 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 the preparation portion of preaching and doing the exegetical work and doing some of the historical background on the text. I love that. That just brings me joy. But you know what else brings me joy? The delivery portion. Being able to yell at you for three services does something to the anger that's in my heart. I get to get it out through preaching. Um, so, so yeah, I, I really do. I, I love preaching. But if I went into ministry only to preach, it really is only a small portion of what I do. My responsibilities as a pastor, they, they, they range, but it's a lot of responsibilities and it's more than just preaching. I'll go so far as to say preaching is only 25% of what I do, if not less. I mean, you, you, you only see, you know, 40 minutes on a Sunday, but there's a lot that goes into pastoring and shepherding people and pastors that really, really care. You know, uh, it's First Peter 5 that said we're going to be held accountable for how we've shepherded God's body. And so I take that very, very serious. There's some things and other responsibilities I have to do. I have to oversee the operation uh, of the church. I have to uh, manage and um, re really pay attention to our general budget as well as our capital campaign. Shout out to the Spread Love Capital campaign. Uh, I, I have to manage a growing staff. Uh, I love our staff here at the church and I, I get the privilege of being able to manage that. 
But by far, one of the most time consuming parts of my responsibilities, and I don't mean this negatively, it's just reality. One of the most time consuming parts of my job is counseling. I spend a ton of time counseling. Every week there is multiple people in my offices. My office as, uh, I said offices, that, that may be prophetic. I don't know. I felt it when I said it. There are multiple people in my office uh, during the week that I have to counsel. And one of the things that is consistent with all of the counseling I do is counseling is typically filled with a bunch of questions. Some of them are theological questions. People come into my office because they want to know how this verse works with this verse. And if they're really studied, they, they want to know how the hypostatic union works. And well, tell me about penal substitution and Terry atonement and tell me about efficacious grace. And they want to work through some deep theological stuff. I don't I don't mind that. I, I get that. I, I remember wrestling with theological questions, but that's just one person. There, there's another person that comes in the office that they have more missiological questions. They want to know what the mission of the church is. What, what should they be doing? How should they be evangelizing? What are we doing to meet the needs of the pressing needs of the community? What is the mission of the church? Then, then there's a third person that comes in that's way more practical. They don't really want to know about the theology of the church. They don't want to know about the mission of the church. They want to know about how God is operating in their lives. In other words, I need to know, should I marry him? I get that one a lot. Should, should, should I take this job? Should I go for this degree? Should I move across country? And so I get a lot of practical questions. And there are times where people will come to my office and ask me a bunch of questions that they actually already know the answer to. They just come in the office so that I can affirm what they already know. In other words, it's in their head, but they need to move it from their head to their heart. And so they come to my office so I can help to balance it out. In fact, I had a meeting this week and the young lady, I don't know if she's in here, but the young lady was in my office and she gave herself, I mean, I literally sat back and just watched her counsel herself. <laughs> and my response after she asked questions that she already knew the answer to was, you already know. Well, what I love about Paul in today's passage, verse 31 to 39, is Paul is going to give us a bunch of questions. I don't know if you've picked this up when we were reading it. But Paul asked six questions between verse 31 and 39. Now, I, I was trying to be ambitious this week and I sat down and I prepared to preach through all of the rest of Romans 8. It's something celebratory and just, you know, that sense of completion when you finally finish up the chapter. But uh, the Holy Spirit arrested my attention after the third question. Hey, you just wouldn't let me move any further. There are six questions. And today we're doing, you already know, part one. Next week when you come back, we're doing part two. We'll deal with three of the six questions. Is that all right? Y'all not mad at me. I, I promise you I, I was not slacking this week. I didn't like run out of stuff to say. I just really got stuck because there's a lot in each question. Let, let's look at the rhetorical questions that Paul asked. Look at verse 31. By the way, let me say this before we jump in. Rhetorical questions are, are those questions that the person asking really isn't looking for a response. He's trying to get the audience to understand what he is saying. Every one of Paul's questions is rhetorical. But Paul isn't sitting there going, who can separate us from the love of God and waiting for an answer? He's trying to get you to understand nothing can separate you from the love of God. So as we're considering the three questions that are before us, please don't disconnect that Paul ain't waiting for an answer. He's trying to give you an answer. Look at what he says. First question. What then shall we say to these things? 
If you are asking Paul back a question, I think a good question to ask him back is, what are the these things that you were talking about? Many commentators have suggested that Paul is saying, when he says these things, he's talking about everything that he's talked about from chapter one all the way to chapter eight. But because we're at the conclusion of chapter eight, can we just do the electric slide and the wobble just through chapter eight? In chapter eight alone, he's already laid out a lot. When he talks about how do you respond or what are, what do you say to these things? He's saying the things that I've already laid out before you. Here's number one that he's laid out before us in verse one of chapter eight. He says, there is therefore no condemnation. And we sat in this room and I told you that many of us, if not all of us can be condemned for a lot, but we are not condemned because Jesus Christ was already condemned. And so Paul says, there is no condemnation. Now Paul is saying, how do you respond that now that you know there is no condemnation? He talked about the Holy Spirit 22 times in chapter 8, verse 11. He talks about how the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies. Last week, you came in here and I got to tell you uh, how Paul is talking about how our present sufferings pales into comparison to a future hope. Paul talks in this passage about how all things work together for the good of them. That's such a preachy verse and all of us rejoice and we walked out of here with some hope. And now Paul is saying, now that I've laid all of this out to you, what do you say to these things? No, notice Paul isn't asking here, shall we say something? Paul understands. He says, what do we say? Paul understands that God's revelation requires a response. Like, sit on that. God's revelation demands that you respond to it. In other words, it's not enough for you to just come in here and take notes. It is not enough for you to just simply say, amen. I, I praise God that y'all help me preach. Y'all say preach, pastor. Y'all y'all say facts. And, you know, the millennials, they say facts. And, and, and y'all take notes. And all, But that is not a good response to the word of God. A good response to the word of God is obedience. That, that, so Paul is saying, what do you say to these things? How do you respond to what Paul has laid out thus far? He's saying, here's how you do it. Obedience. Obedience is the greatest amen. I can tell you as a pastor now, I don't care that you can quote it. I want to know, do you live it? Are, are you serious about the word of God to the point where it moves from just being academic and it moves from just taking notes? It moves from just some information, but application. It moves to life. And so God's word here, Paul is saying it demands, demands that you and I respond to it. Let me make it personal for you. How are you responding to what Paul has already laid out? Okay, let me get broader. How do you respond to the word of God? Do you respond with obedience or are you disobeying the word? Because here's the reality. Many of us, it's easier for us to obey the passages that we agree with. But when the passage goes against your sin preference, then it's hard for us to obey. Can, can anybody be honest? There's just some scriptures that you're like, ah, God, that was a little hard for me. I'm going to be real with you. I read chapter nine and I was already like, God, can I skip to chapter 10? Because there's just some things in there. But when you know that the word of God is true, that the word of God is right, you will move to obey what the word of God says. How do you respond to these things that he's laid out? Do you respond with obedience? I was on the, on the phone with a, one of my friends. He's a pastor at a church out in Jersey. And when I was talking to him, at the end of the conversation, before we hung up, 
he said something that really rocked me for a couple of hours after I got off the phone. He says, man, listen, bro, the church looks so successful. And then we hung up the phone and I wrestled. In fact, I had elders meeting and we couldn't even start elders meeting because I was kind of processing what it means to be a successful church. Can I help you out as well? Like, what does it mean that you're successful? I feel like success is so subjective. It's based on the person's own value system and what someone else deems as successful, you might not deem as successful. And I, I realized when I got off the phone with him that he defined success based on what he saw on IG. How many know IG will lie? That Snapseed filter, every moment ain't duck lips, everything ain't about a selfie. There, Because we ain't taking pictures when we frustrated and we dealing with depression. We're not taking those pictures. So social media will always show you the best version of you. And I realized when I got off the phone, he was defining success by what he saw on social media. Shoot, I'll be honest with you, since the start of this year, we've experienced a 43% growth in attendance. Like by God's grace, people are coming to hear the good news of the gospel. And the problem is if you define success as people coming, what happens when people leave? Are you not successful? Let, 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 me, let me go deeper. I think it's hard when you try to define success as numeric growth. The reason I think it's hard is because Number one, even cancer grows, tumor grows. And so what happens when you define success as numeric growth, you forget that obedience is really the marker in the measurement of success because you can have a whole bunch of disobedient people that just gather because they like the music, but they're not applying the word. And so I wrestled. I said, God, what is God? What does success look like in our church? Is it just numbers? Don't let me buy into the lie of numbers. I'll take 20 people, God, that will be devoted to the word of God, will be obedient to the word of God, because that is success. And so I wrestled with it and I realized I finally landed in a good place of what success looks like. And I said, success is obedience. Can you write that down somewhere in your your phone or, in, or, or if you're taking notes, define success as obedience to the word of God and put a little asterisk next to it and say obedience to your favorite passages and the ones you don't like. Because that's real obedience. And so us going through the book of Romans is really twofold. Number one, I want you to bring your brains to church. So I actually do want you to learn something. There, there should be information that you receive that you are like, ah, I never saw that before. I didn't know that's how God worked. I didn't know what that's what the author meant. So, yes, please bring your brains to church. I want you to walk out of here and actually learn something. We are not a church that is so cool that we have no depth. I don't even want to pastor a church like that. I don't want to pastor a church where we just gather together to hear sermons that tickle our ears and tell you that you're going to be, this is your best life now. No, if this is your best life now, you don't understand heaven. It is not that type of church. Those are what I call cotton candy sermons. You know what a cotton candy sermon is? Cotton candy, you ever ate cotton candy and it tastes good, but it's gone two seconds? That's a cotton candy sermon. My opinion, cotton candy sermon. Me tickling your fancy is a cotton candy sermon. What you need is the nutrients of the gospel, which means sometimes you will walk out of here and say amen, and sometimes you'll walk out and say ouch. Obedience is what we're striving for. And so the, the, the first reason we're going through the book of Romans is because I, I actually want you to learn something. But the second reason is because of obedience. I want you to apply what you learn. And I'm grateful, man, that you guys come and you're serious 
about your notes and praise God. But here's what Paul is saying. How do you respond to these things? How do you respond to the word of God? So that's the first question that he asked. Can we move on to the second question? Have we exhausted enough in that first one? Okay, let's move on to the second one. If y'all said no, I was going to keep going anyway. (laughs) Second question. If God is for us, we're still in verse 31. Who can be against us? Short answer, nobody. But I don't want you to rush past. See, don't get to the question who can be against us. Don't rush past the fact that he said, God is for you. Like, sit on that for a second. Country Wayne would say on social media, let that marinate like neck bones. (laughs) Contemplate that the God of the universe, the one that created and sustains all of life, is for you. I know it don't feel like he's for you. I know that situation feel like it's going to take you out. It. I know you feel like everything is against you, but rest in the first part, the statement before the question is, God is for you. Look at your name and say, God is for you. He, 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 he's all like he he's not against you. And this statement is a present reality. He didn't used to be for you and before you. And now he's against you because he's mad at, you know, he's for you. And there's no greater proof that he's for you than the cross of Jesus Christ. The fact that he was willing to send his son shows you God is for you. I love that he says God is for us, but I really want to make it personal for you because the body is made up of people. God is for each and every one of us that is in this room. And this passage gave me hope this week. It did. It gave me hope because, you know, look around the room. It's, it's getting tighter and tighter. And man, we have been working hard to find another space. I know, praise God, that you guys have been giving. You should know that we are stewarding your resources well. And we are trying to find a space. And we're walking in with a little bit more swag because there's a, f- a few dollars that you guys have given. And so I-, I promise you we are striving. But it's hard out here in these real estate streets. It feels like the entire process is against us. Right when you feel like you're close to it, it's like it's snatched away and it's easy to walk away and be like, God, you're not for us. But if the process is against us, what this scripture says, God is for us though. It, it can happen. And this, what is true of Epiphany Church is true of you as well. God is not just for Epiphany Church, but he is actually for you as well. Your boss might be against you, but God is for you. Your family members might be against you, but God is for you. Your co-workers might be lying on you and, and harassing you and social media stalking you. I just seen somebody say amen right there. But God is for you. He is not against you. And the reality is, if God is for you, what or who can be against you? What, what, what is the opposition that you are dealing with? It's nothing compared to God being for you. And so Paul is not suggesting here. But Paul is not suggesting that opposition won't happen. He's saying opposition doesn't stand a chance because nothing can stand against me. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Lion King, animated movies. Er, er, 90s Lion King, not the remake. Beyonce's voice just threw me off. I'm sorry, Beehive. It just, it messed me up. Like the Nala should have been somebody else. But in the original, in the original, the 90s movie, animated movie there's a scene in that movie respond if y'all remember the scene where young Simba wanders off into an elephant graveyard and he gets into the graveyard and these hyenas are there and it's a climactic scene and they chase him and the music's going and they corner him and young Simba feels bold and he lets out a teeny weeny roar and they laugh at him 
They ask him, do it again because they want to make fun of him. And he lets out another roar and they continue to laugh at him. And he's angry. And the third time he lets out a roar. This one is louder with a lot more bass to it. But he didn't realize it wasn't actually him roaring. King Mufasa was behind him roaring. And that's in a deeper and a higher and a more profound way. That is what you get in this passage that your roar is minute. But king of kings, not King Mufasa, but Jesus. Jesus is behind you. God is for you. And I know that's hard to fathom. I know that's hard to fathom because many times when we do things wrong, we feel like God is mad at us. But this text just affirmed that he's for you. He's for you. He's for your good. He's for the things that you think that nobody else cares about. He's actually for all of that. And so well, get on your mind your opponent right now. What brings you fear right now? What in your life is making you fearful? What, what makes your heart beat? What keeps you up at night? I'm going to help you out. God is for you. What, 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 what is it? Like, who is it? Who is that person that brings you so much anxiety and turmoil? God is for you. Can I go spiritual? Get on your mind the enemy of your soul, Satan himself. I know he's your adversary. I know he's hostile towards you, but... God is for us. You know that spiritual warfare is real. Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness. And and, and so what you got to understand is that even though the enemy is against you, this text affirms for me today that God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? I, I love the way Isaiah will say it. Isaiah, I think it's 55, could be 57, where Isaiah says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You, you, you got to understand that he, he also says that the weapon is formed, but it doesn't prosper. That, that's what it says. There's no weapon that is formed against you shall be able to prosper. He doesn't say the weapon doesn't form. He says it forms, but it doesn't prosper because the opposition pales in the comparison of a King Mufasa, of a King of Kings that is on your side. And so I don't know what it is that you are dealing with I can, I'm not naive, so I know all of us walk in this room with a set of baggage and some stuff that we are dealing with, but I just want to help you today that God is for you. I think we've beat that point enough. First question, what should we say to these things? In other words, how do you respond to everything Paul has laid out? And more broader than that, how do you respond to all of scripture? Second question, if God is for us, who can be against us? The third and final question is found in verse 32. Now, don't miss this. In verse 32, he doesn't start with the question. He starts with a profound statement. But the statement is connected to the question. Look at verse 32. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The statement is God didn't spare his own son. The question is, if he did that, how will he not graciously give us all things? Now, understand that all things means minor and major. Because I think sometimes we think, God, I know you too busy, so you don't want to hear the minor stuff I'm dealing with. Let me just bring you the big stuff. He's like, no, no, no. If he gave his son, he wants to hear it all. That that stuff that nobody else wants to hear, that stuff that people laugh at you. God is like, no, I want to hear all of that. And so really, essentially, what he is saying is if God gave us the greatest gift in the world, which is Jesus Christ, will he not 
meet your minor and major needs while here on earth. Last week, I told you I hate the prosperity gospel, and I, I, don't, I, I don't mince words when I say that. This gospel that says you get Jesus plus stuff as though Jesus is Santa Claus. That, that's not what Jesus is. Jesus and Jesus alone is the goal, but don't swing the pendulum too far. Although I hate the prosperity gospel, I equally hate the poverty gospel. This gospel that will say Jesus doesn't want to meet any of your earthly needs. The devil is a liar. This just said to me that if he gave his own son, if he did not spare him, he will give you all graciously give you all things. And that is deep for me because in the giving of his son was so brutal. He, he didn't have 10 sons and gave Jesus and still had nine. He didn't look around heaven and say, Gabriel, you go handle it. He, he didn't do that. He sent his one and only son. And there was a moment where Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. And while he was there, he was pleading with God to not let this thing happen to him. And God turned the deaf ear on him. He turns the deaf ear because he knows that it is the only way that you and I will be reconciled and redeemed. And if God was able to allow his son to be beat, spit on and persecuted and ultimately executed for our behalf, will he not meet your minor needs as well? Yes, he'll meet your mind. But you have to differentiate between major uh, between needs and wants. You have to that's that's really important for us because a lot of times he doesn't give you what you want and you confuse your wants with your needs. There's some stuff that you want that's not I don't know about y'all, but I've asked God for stuff before that. I look back. I look at my journals and I look back and I be like, God, I asked you for that. Thank you for not answering that one. That was fickle. That was so self-absorbed. That was not God glorifying. I asked you for stuff. Anybody ever did that where you ask God for some stuff that you look back on? And you're like, I'm glad you didn't answer that. So God doesn't meet your wants. He meets your needs. Can I talk to the singles for a minute? You, singles, can I talk to y'all for a minute? You, you know, we have Valentine's Day on, on Friday. And I think, you know... I want to pass to the singles for a moment because I think what happens is we want companionship, but we don't know that God isn't sitting in today, but he's sitting in 10 years from now. And he knows that that want of yours right now may not be what you need, because if he gives you that boo thing, you might replace him. So he's like, now you want you want marriage and you want companionship, but what you need is singleness right now. I don't, I don't know if, that, if that's your, your lot. I don't know if that, I know you're like, ah, oh, Pastor B, my Boaz is coming. <laughs> but Boaz might not be what you need right now. What you need is, it, because at the end of the day, singles, what we've done is we've glorified marriage to make mean that we're more spiritual. And it doesn't mean you're more spiritual. I know a lot of marriages that are dysfunctional. I know a lot of marriages that are not God honoring. And so singles, please understand what I'm saying to you, that God will meet your needs, but it might not always be connected with what you want. Same thing with jobs. With jobs, we're like, God, I need this job. He's like, no, you want this job. But if I give it to you, you'll make a ton of money and fool around and forget who your provider is. So therefore you want it. But what you need is paycheck to paycheck. Uh-uh, Pastor B. I live like that too long, <laughs> you know, but th this is how God operates. He, he looks at your life, not just today, but he looks at your emotional state 20 years from now. He looks at how you will parent with brokenness. And he looks at that and says, no, what you need right now is just more time with me. 
What you need is to find your identity in me. Stop finding your identity in marriage. That is not the goal. The goal is me and the goal will always be me. And once you are fully satisfied in me, then I might meet that need. And notice I said might. I wish I could be the pastor to tell you, God, you everybody up in here going to get married. I would be lying to you. You know, Jeremiah says in that day, there'll be seven women to each man. In other words, the ratio of women and men, you know, statistically, there's more women in the world than men. That, that's not even counting the men that ain't even trying to get married. Brothers, holler at me if that's you. Like, seek a, seek a wife. It's, it's okay. Commit. It's okay. But that's not even counting them. So I wish that I could say everybody will get married, but marriage is not the goal. Jesus is the goal. He will meet your needs. The things that you think you want might not be the things that you need, but what you need, he always meets. And, you know, he says stuff in Matthew chapter seven, like if you that are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, Will not your father also give good gifts? And then he goes on to, to say, if your, if your son asks for a, uh, for a bread, will you, will you give him a stone? He goes on to say, if he asks you for a fish, are you going to give him a serpent? In other words, he's saying your father knows how to give you good gifts. He knows how to meet your needs. And I know this season right now feels like he's not meeting any needs. But even if you're in a season of tor- turmoil, you might need that. I know it's like we're always trying to get out of that season. We're always trying to get to the next season. God is like, sit in it because you might need persecution. You might need hardship. You might need to be lied on. You might need to be single. You might need to be laid off because it is in that time that I prune you. Pruning ain't easy. Bible says that he prunes to bear more fruit. Do you know what pruning is? It's literally taking a knife and cutting fruit off. So that you can bear more fruit and you might be in that season, but I want to promise you that God knows how to meet your needs, not simply your wants. Let me end here. That the greatest need of all of us will always be Jesus. And those of you who don't know Jesus, and I know you're in here. Thank you for coming to church today, but I can promise you that your greatest need today is Jesus. Because Jesus supplies the greatest need, which is salvation. Don't disconnect your sin. You bring a lot of sin to the table. But Jesus brings a lot of mercy. He brings a lot of grace. Every head bow and every eye closed. Somebody in here knows that I'm talking directly to them. Maybe you've been coming for a while. You just like, you know, people are nice and music's cool. The phone shui up there is nice. The vibe is nice. But the reality is, I think you keep coming back because God is drawing you. God is pursuing you. And praise God that he's pursuing you because outside of him pursuing you, you don't have it in you to pursue him. It's, it's the mouse chasing the cat. It just... It, doesn't happen. You need Jesus. You need him to pursue you. You need him to seek you out. In fact, that was his mission statement that I came to seek and save the lost. He's pursuing you today. So as you contemplate these questions, as you contemplate how God meets your needs, as you are contemplating that he's given you all good things, I need you to contemplate that he wants to save you today. And for the one that does know Jesus, you've been walking with him for a while. You've been, 
You've been coming to church. You've been committed. I've been giving to the church. I've been serving. You too, God, wants to renew that pursuit. Contemplate the three questions. And then I'll pray. What shall we say to these things? How do you respond to God's word? If God is for us, who can be against us? Sitting and resting in the fact that God is for you. And then finally, if he did not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us all things? Father, I pray for the room. Thank you, O God, for each and every individual. It is not a mistake they're here. I don't don't know if someone promised them brunch if they came to church. I, I don't know. But Lord, I do know that you use even stuff like that to woo people into your kingdom. Thank you, God, because all all of us that know you, you've had to pursue us at one point. I remember when I was hostile towards you. And you were so gracious to take the insults and take the stealing of your own glory. You were gracious enough, oh God, to still save me. And so, Father, I pray that the greatest need in the room will be met. I don't want to rush past this. I pray for salvation today. Pray for that person that doesn't know you to know that Jesus is crazy about them so much so that he didn't just write, I love you letters, but he went to a cross to say, this is how much I love you. So Father, I pray for salvation in this room. Pray for transformed hearts. Pray that you would do a work, a new work in their life. It's in Christ's name we pray.